My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Uh, we are re- really glad that you have joined us this morning. Uh, and we're entering into a conversation. We looked at the first part of it last week. Uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples about abiding in him and about him abiding in them. And one of the things we saw was that the idea of abiding kind of carries this connotation of taking up residence, dwelling in, finding your home in Jesus. And Jesus continues the conversation this week, but the setting changes. It's no longer at home where things are safe and happy and comfortable. It's out in the world. And as we're going to see this morning, things are not quite the same there. Jesus continues in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. Oh God, we come to this word of yours, and honestly, it's not our favorite. This doesn't seem uh, nice. This seems challenging and hard. And so we have a temptation to tune out, to try and make excuses or think about other things so we don't have to deal with the reality of what you're saying here. But I pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts to help us hear your faithfulness, to help us hear your love for us, to help us hear the words of life this morning. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain, and I pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. It is always funny to me when someone tries to encourage you to do something that is very clearly, obviously not a good idea. Like the other day, We're eating breakfast, my daughters are at the table, one of them opens up the milk to pour on their cocoa puffs and takes a big whiff and makes this face. I mean, just sheer disgust and revulsion. And she says, Dad, I think the milk has gone bad. And I said from the kitchen, oh, really? Yes, smell it. Why would I do that? After the face you just made, that is clearly not going to be a pleasant experience for me. This passage sets off similar warning bells in my head. 
Remember, Jesus is going to be arrested shortly. He and his 11 disciples are walking away from the house where they celebrated their last supper together through a vineyard on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. The 12th disciple Judas is off betraying Jesus and leading the authorities to come arrest him. Jesus is preparing his disciples to go out into the world without him. And this is what he says? Jesus is not sugarcoating anything. This future that he's talking to them about, this world he's telling them to go out into, is not a rainbows and teddy bears and butterflies type of preparation. Jesus is not saying, hey, you know what, guys, things might get rough, might be a little challenging, but don't worry, don't worry. Try to stay positive. Everything is going to be okay. What Jesus says here can be pretty discouraging. It can be shocking. And after all the stuff that he says, why? Why would anyone want to go out into the world? It is a sobering reminder of what we will experience, but of also what we have been given. See, in this passage, Jesus actually promises three things, three things that we're going to look at this morning, a promise of tension, a promise of connection, and a promise of strength. We're going to start by looking at a promise of tension. The straightforward message of Jesus to the disciples is this, life is going to be tough. You will be rejected by many people in the world. They will confront you. They will accuse you. They will ostracize you just for being a follower of Jesus. Now, if you are anything like me, the people pleaser in you just groaned. Really? For the disciples, these things that Jesus said happens very quickly and very accurately. They are kicked out of synagogues. They are publicly mocked. They are ridiculed. They are beaten. And they are killed in the name of zealousness, protecting the true church. But Jesus' words are the same for all who follow Him. And that includes you, and that includes me. For anyone who is in Jesus' name, for if you are a Christian, you may not be killed for your faith. You may not be reviled or mocked, but Jesus says here, there's always going to be tension in your life. There's always going to be tension between the life that Jesus gives to you, the life that Jesus is growing in you, and the world around you, period. I think that I have a unique insight into that tension. We have a guy who just joined uh, our gym, and he came into the second class uh, that he and I were both a part of, and he asked me that question that I always hate being asked. What do you do for a living? <clears throat> I hate it, because as soon as I say, I'm a pastor, I get one of two responses really quickly okay, conversation over. Or something compels the person to begin divulging all of this stuff that they have done in their life, which I understand the proclivity to do either of those things, but what is really happening in both of those responses is a distancing between myself and this person. Maybe an actual distancing where they don't talk to me anymore, 
but also by, by starting to unpack everything that they have going on inside. Crea- there's a separation created. We can no longer just be friends, acquaintances, right? There is a, a passive rejection and isolation that happens when people find out that I'm a pastor. I suspect that you know the tension of divulging to a new acquaintance, a co-worker, a family friend, your neighbor, that you are a Christian. I suspect that you know the tension of how living in Silicon Valley means for you as a Christian. You know what the rest of Silicon Valley thinks of Christians. Jesus is saying that tension will always exist. And His concern is how we respond to that tension. In verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says, I'm telling you these things to keep you from falling away. Now, one of the great temptations for all Christians when we experience this tension, this potential rejection, is to do one of two things, to assimilate or to isolate. To assimilate or to isolate, and both of those things are falling away. Right? Assimilation for us doesn't have to look like compromising the beliefs that you have, but it can look like all kinds of things. It can look like working 60 to 70 hours a week so that your performance and your reputation keeps up with those around you. It can look like drinking to excess or smoking every day, taking gummies every day, just because that's how the world handles stress and you're going to fit in a little bit better. Assimilation can look like spending hours on social media and watching Netflix just so you can keep up with the conversation tomorrow. Assimilation might look like pushing your kids to have certain grades, get into certain schools, doing two, three, four extracurricular activities so that they maintain a standard. Assimilation might look like going hiking or mountain biking or to brunch on Sunday instead of coming to church just so you have some good Instagram material. All of those acts of assimilation expose our sin patterns. They're all attempts to resolve or escape potential tension in life between the new life Jesus has given us and the life of the world around us. But the same is true if we fall away in the opposite direction, away from the culture. Sure, you might be thinking, assimilation is dangerous, and so I'm going to double down. I'm going to protect myself and my family. I'm going to insulate myself and my family from the world around you. But guess what? The danger of the world out there is still in here, and you can't isolate from yourself, right? The the gospel writer John writes in his first epistle, the first letter of John, that the dangerous things in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are all not from God. Those things are in here as well. And that means that the tension is not just between me and the world around me, but it's between me, the new life that God has given me, and the old self that still dwells in me. My old sinful self wages war, creates tension, causes me to look down and condemn myself as well. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. It's one of the uh, verses, one of the quotes in the front of your bulletin. Paul says in Romans 7, 
verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. If I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Do you hear the tension there? There is tension within, which is why Jesus prays in His high priestly prayer just a few chapters away. God the Son asks God the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus promises tension. Tension with the world out there. Tension with the old self in here. Life will be full of conflict for those who follow Jesus. His words are prophetic, and His understanding and expectation of a life full of tension for His followers invites us, as Jen put it in our staff meeting this week, to learn to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. To learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's nice and tidy and concise, but how the heck should we become comfortable with being uncomfortable? Well, we need the second promise of this passage. The first promise was a promise of tension. The second is a promise of connection. Jesus says the root of the tension is not based on who you are, what you say, how you look, where you come from, or which team you root for. It has to do with who you belong to. In verse 21, Jesus says, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This tension, this rejection, hatred of the world comes from our connection to and relationship with Jesus. It puts us at odds with the world, with our own flesh, and with the devil. Right? And this, this is a deep fundamental connection that we have, that we've been talking about with Jesus, right? Earlier in this exact conversation, as we saw two weeks ago, Jesus described our connection to Him like this, John 14, verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is not just like a formal handshake, right? This isn't the spiritual nod of the head. This isn't just being Jesus' acquaintance. This is Jesus in the Father, us in Jesus, Him in us. We are connected to the Trinity, to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Nicole and I went snorkeling in Mexico, and I've been snorkeling plenty of times in my life, but when we went uh, off the coast of Cancun, the water was incredibly rough. Choppy doesn't quite cut it, so much so that the boat captain told us that he would only allow strong swimmers to get off the boat. And if you've ever been snorkeling, you know the feeling that arises in you when you get uh, pummeled by a wave or you take a deep breath and dive below the surface as the salt water goes down your snorkel and comes into your mouth. Maybe you planned it, maybe you didn't, but something happens inside. It's a little bit of a panic, knowing that you are now cut off 
from your only supply of oxygen. Being gifted, this connection to the Trinity, is like breaking through the surface of the water and taking a deep breath after being trapped below the waves. True, invigorating life floods every aspect of your being. Deep breath. Maybe you found some things to connect to in your life that you think are going to give you life, but just like scuba tanks, they are fake. Those things are manufactured, and if they work, they only last a little while. Breathe in the love and faithfulness and acceptance of God. Jesus' words here communicate that no matter what the world thinks of you, no matter what rejection looks like in your life, even if the world goes so far as to persecute you, your connection to Him will not, cannot be lost. No matter what your heart says to you, no matter how you condemn and malign yourself, Jesus will not condemn you nor break His fellowship with you. That's great, you might say, but that doesn't necessarily feel like a win, right? If, if we're all being honest with each other, Dealing with tension and rejection and conflict in life feels so much bigger and so much weightier and a far more painful possibility than having a secure connection to God. Almost as if Jesus is promising like a consolation prize, right? You're never going to be fully accepted by the world. You're going to have conflict in your life. Life will never be fully secure or comfortable, but don't worry, you're connected to God. That feels like a consolation prize, but the reality is our connection to God is what each one of us needs most. It is the deepest need of our life. And so in order to feel that, to feel that our deepest need is met, we need something else. We need to be strengthened. And that is the third promise of our passage, a promise of strength. Jesus makes this promise right in the middle of our passage. Verse 26, He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. That is where our strength comes from, the Spirit bearing witness. But what does that even mean? What does that even look like? What will the Holy Spirit do to bear witness? And how does that even factor into our lives? Well, the Greek word here for bear witness is martureo, to bear witness, to testify. And all of us have seen enough episodes of Law and Order to know that when somebody testifies to something, they are guaranteeing that something they have seen or they have heard or they have experienced is true, right? And we know that a witness's testimony is often what leads to the proclamation of guilt or innocence because there's authority in affirmation. There's authority in testifying. And what Jesus is saying here is the Holy Spirit will come and authoritatively proclaim the truth about Jesus. What truth about Jesus? The things that He just told the disciples, that the things that He spoke in His life, the revelations He made while teaching, the miraculous works that He performed. 
the perfect obedience to the law of God and submission to the Father's will in every aspect of his life, the Spirit testifies that all of that was true, that Jesus was innocent, spotless, blameless, yet died the most gruesome, horrible death imaginable, taking the punishment that your sin and my sin deserve. The Spirit testifies that that is true. But Jesus didn't stay dead. On the third day, He rose again, His body alive. He spoke with His followers, with His friends, with His family. Over 500 people He appeared to. The Spirit testifies that that is true. And Jesus will one day come again to bring us home, to wipe every tear from your eyes, to make all sad things come untrue. The Spirit testifies that that is true, really and truly. It is those truths that give us strength, that bolster us in seasons of tension and conflict with the world around us and with our own sinful flesh. And it might not feel like those truths bring strength, but the reality is they are supernatural and powerful, and they enliven this new Jesus purchased Jesus-given life in us, strengthening us into the person God is making us to be. You see, it's the same Greek word, martyreo, that we get our term, martyr, being persecuted to death for your faith. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the only way any Christian has ever been able to stare martyrdom in the face is because of the strengthening of the Holy Spirit within them. If you read Fox's book of the martyrs, if you read some of the accounts of pastors and brothers and sisters in China and Nigeria and the Middle East facing persecution, facing uh, enslavement and death, all of them testify to the truths of Jesus, just as He says they will. And all testify, bear witness to Jesus because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit in them. Strength to surmount any obstacle. On August 20th, 1980, Reinhold Messner became the first European to climb Mount Everest alone without the support of compressed air, no alpine-style climbing equipment, no super support, all by himself. And at the summit of Everest, just so you know, there is 30% of the oxygen available to us here at sea level. He said when he got to the summit, he was so exhausted that he just fell into the snow and dozed off. Fortunately, he said, after a couple hours of puffing, he was able to get, gain enough strength to then descend. But when he returned to his hiking companion, his girlfriend, she saw somebody completely different. She wrote this in her diary, it seems that a drunk came down from the cold and not the same man who left four days ago. He looks at me with tears in his eyes. His face is yellow. His lips are chapped and frayed. And in an interview, a reporter heard this about Mesner and asked him, why would you go up there? to possibly die, to face certain death. And he famously replied, I did not go up there to die. I went up there to live. Why would you follow Jesus 
when rejection and tension and conflict are promised? Why, as a follower of Jesus, would you want to engage in a world that will certainly object and distance itself from you, ridicule you, and mock you? Because the testimony of the Holy Spirit proclaims that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus connects us to God, to the Trinity, and that is truly living. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You connect Yourself to us through the death and resurrection of Your Son and the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Help us to see, particularly when the world around us abandons us, particularly when our own hearts and our own flesh wage war against the righteousness You give us. Help us to see our connection to You. Help us to see Your faithfulness to us and strengthen us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to proclaim, because Christ died, I can live. Because He lives again, I can push on. We thank You for Your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen.